so I'm delighted that you're actually taking part in this, Roger. Like I said in my email, it's a subject that's really close to my heart and you've probably sensed from working with Consalia that it's a topic that uh, we take quite seriously and I think that a lot of the work that I did for my doctorate was based around values, which of course is a you know, core element of your approach as well. So for the purposes of this podcast, it would be just brilliant if we could start by you sharing your personal journey and how did you get to this point? Um, so over to you, Roger, to give us a quick history of who Roger is. I suppose the key moments in my life and career are that I'm from a family that was um, quite uh, Christian in its background. My father, although he was in the construction industry six days a week, on the Sabbath he was a Methodist preacher. He also literally taught me a Protestant work ethic. I read history at university and did, and also did the history of Western philosophy with Conrad Russell, the son of the great British philosopher Bertrand Russell. And that was a big impact on my career. I had to critique his history of Western philosophy um, then I, uh, I was sort of had this voice in my head about getting a good career and, and a good job. So I joined banking from university, joined the Midland Bank, quite for a shallow reason. They offered me the most money and it was a city location. And I've worked a lot with banking, the banks and senior bankers over the last 20 years, which we may touch on. And then I, in a way, dropped out and became a residential social worker with um, young people in care aged between 10 and 16. And that was what I call my MBA in life because I'd had a, you know, quite a, a sheltered, middle-class Protestant upbringing. And uh, I learned a lot about human suffering and abuse and drugs and all the rest of it which i think i needed to get some perspective on life and the world i often reflect when i'm working with leaders and teams when they say they've had a bad day at the office and i'm thinking i'm not sure you know what that looks and feels like uh, in some ways and, and i'm not i'm not sort of downplaying the fact that fear in the workplace is actually quite prevalent we may touch on this later phil because um, I've got a, a big thing about psychological safety and bullying leaders, uh, boss bullying bosses, I should say. Um, but I learned a lot about uh, humanity at its worst and at its best, um, and how you know people do good people do bad things and bad people do good things, and so on. Then I came back into the city and combined my knowledge of banking and delinquency and became a headhunter in the city, ha-ha. Um, and, uh, and I was very good at it. I was very good at it, apparently, because I was able to match people's character to the culture of the organisation. I think my clients then really appreciated the fact that I wasn't matching, just matching CVs with job descriptions, which a computer can do better, in a way. Um, than the human, but actually matching people to people. And that was important. I was then also able, because I was quite good at it and people thought I was quite a good leader, I became a, a divisional CEO within ADECO, the world's largest employment agency. So I've had my, I've had my experience at running a business in, in part of a multinational. It was a very big business, but it had quite a lot of influence. And I learned if you like, at the front line, what leadership was all about. And it is it is almost entirely about character and moral values such as compassion and courage and very little about all the crap that you see in job descriptions for leaders and managers in business. I mean, one of my pet hates is the fact that we tend to be hiring either bureaucrats or bullies into management and leadership roles. And that's why so many businesses fail or don't do very well. And then I, <clears throat> I disagreed with my group CEO. I left, he didn't, inevitably, and started my current journey 20 years ago. I had another break. I ended up writing a paper with a good friend of mine who's a Benedictine abbot, and we defined integrity. 
And, <clears throat> and I started asking leaders of banks and insurance companies what they thought integrity was and was appalled at their lack of insight and knowledge of moral philosophy, um, predicted the financial crash and all of the mis-selling scandals we've had, libel, manipulation, all of that is in, has been inevitable. And, you know, I think in many cases still will be. And what's, what applied to the financial services sector, uh, these weaknesses are endemic throughout business and throughout society. So my, so what I'm trying to do now, and I put both hands up, you know, I'm no saint, uh, but I'm trying to help all of us to stop and think about our purpose in life, the values we believe in, the fact that there are just a few very simple principles that if we live and work to, life is okay. It's really about treating other people with humanity and care and compassion and having the courage to stand up for what you think is right and not getting sucked in by what I call consumer capitalism. Well, we share, well, I don't know how much you know about me, but we share sort of similar backgrounds. So when I left school, I followed the same path as you. I went into banking. I was with the Hong Kong and Shanghai banking group and their foreign staff training department. Not training, I was a trainee and uh, left after a year because I, I just couldn't quite cope with the system. And I do sometimes wonder if I'd stayed on, you know, where I would be now. It was it, at the time it was a it was a fantastic you know opportunistic opening for me and I think in those days banking was perceived in a very different way actually to how it might be perceived now mm. um, so yeah so in that sense I think we followed a similar similar kind of career and we both in our own ways have kind of focused on the ethicability of how we do things and what drives that though my focus is slightly different or has been just slightly different to yours I think so, it, you know, it's interesting what you talk about, you know, the mis-selling scandals that happened in the banking sector. And if there is one sector that probably has gone through a huge transformation as far as its approach to customers, it must be that sector, perhaps mm. more than any others, you know, driven by their practices. And I've been following that story actually with, quite a bit of interest and I wonder if you could maybe share some of the work that you observed when you were working you know with the banks whilst this was going on because I think you were quite closely involved in in that if I'm not mistaken. Yes thank you Phil um, yes I was and have been and still, still am to to some extent and you're right in a way the banking sector has been at its worst when it's been mis-selling it's been forcing colleagues to mis-sell financial products which are nothing wrong with products if they're sold correctly to the people who need those products but this is where my i guess understanding of the drivers of mis-selling which is through performance management system which are ill you know poorly designed and really don't reflect what motivates people which I think we'll come back to in a second. But yes, so all of the, you know, none of the products that, you know, especially PPI, for example, payment protection insurance is a bad product, providing it's sold to the person who needs it in the right way. But I think that the banks, you know, who have paid in terms of fines and compensation, uh, something like 50 billion pounds back to the British consumer have had a very expensive training program on uh, what sales actually means. And I'm, I'm not sure how many people involved in selling goods and services actually understand the root of the word sale or selling. And as a philosopher, I'm fascinated by words and their origins. And if any of your audience doesn't understand the root of the word sales or selling, then just go to any decent dictionary and look at the etymology of the word and in its um you know norse and germanic roots old germanic roots it actually means to deliver a promise a bit, a bit like the word credit uh, from the latin credere which is 
which is a promise to repay a loan. And I think that, like many things in, our, in life, the act of selling in its original sense has been corrupted and perverted. So there's nothing wrong in selling if, you're, if you are helping someone buy a good or service that they truly need and will benefit them. But if you do it in the wrong way, like most things in life, it ends in not only moral corruption, but financial disaster in time, because the truth always catches up with us. And this is what we've seen with the banking sector. So yes, it's cost 50 billion pounds for them to learn this lesson. They have pretty much abolished sales commissions in retail banking. I'm not quite sure where they are in the insurance sector. They're a bit further behind the banking sector at the moment, a few years behind, but will be catching up. Asset management, not quite so commission-driven, but still target-driven. And I, I found most of the work I've been doing with them has been, if you like, twofold. So first of all, individuals. So, so the way I work is I work with individual leaders and small teams of leaders, start, you know, starting with the senior executive team and all the boards, um, in actually trying to get to understand them, their backstory, their drivers, their motivations which does two things. Me, uh, firstly, it gives me an insight into the way they think and feel about things. And secondly, it builds trust between uh, them and me so that when we're confronting brutal truths, we can do it with, with the metaphorical arm around the shoulder. But I also then have to look at the systemic problems. So I look at the way people are motivated and rewarded or punished. And, you know, it's too many sticks and carrots, not enough exploration of what really motivates people and gets the best out of them, which there is abundant psychological research. And, you know, one of my, one of my learnings personally has been how little business leaders and many other leaders know about the human psyche and what drives us, what gets the best out of us. In many ways, we're still rooted in sort of some feudal slavery mindset where coercive control, which is, you know, a psychological term for bullying, is still seen to be the thing that you do in order to try and get the best out of your people. So, yeah, I mean, in, in a way, you're right. The banking sector is one that other sectors should learn from, but I'm not sure they are. And obviously things are a bit, up in the air at the moment because of the current pandemic. Although this in itself is an ideal opportunity for people to look at what we actually do need in life and the goods and services that, that we should be buying from people who are selling them in the right way. Yeah, I, I think there's just a couple of things um, to perhaps to add to, to what you've just said. One of the very first books on selling was written in the mid 1800s, but it, it wasn't written by someone on the sales side. It was written by someone on the buy side and it's called something like this, how tis done, um, <laughs> a thorough ventilation of the scurrilous tricks that wandering canvases get up to. I don't know if you've come across that book, but- Oh, it sounds wonderful. Oh, it is. I think you'd love it. If you, if you love words, and clearly you do, I think you might find it an interesting read, but it's very well researched. I mean, even down to, you talk about the systems, the performance systems, even down to the P&L that book canvases were kind of rewarded on. And, and they even publish a, a 96-step guide to selling you know, <laughs> outlining all the tricks of the trade, if you like. It's a fabulous book. It's a good read. But I think that, you know, this idea of manipulation in order to get personal gain is, is an interesting one. In, in more recent times, there have been some interesting accounts of companies buying companies and then finding out that sales you know reported sales isn't quite what they were and i'm, I'm talking about very large companies you know uh, one in particular that comes to mind is hewlett-packard's acquisition of autonomy and then having to do an i think it was a five billion impairment charge in their accounts a year later because you know the way in which that that company has portrayed sales figures has been misleading and 
it got me thinking about how things become systemic and because I've been wondering about the salespeople that work for these kind of organizations. Now, how do they, you know, they've been asked to portray sales figures in certain ways, but maybe they don't question whether it's right or wrong. Hmm. As long as they get their paycheck, they'll do it, you know, kind of thing. So you've got these, you know, you talk about it in your book, ethic, you know, these dilemmas that you're kind of faced with. And, you know, I think it's a huge, it's a huge issue for the sales profession to look at the systems that reward the right behavior and they do it in a in an ethical way so uh, i think it's very interesting that you, you you're very close to the banking world i've seen it from other you know kind of examples and the stick and carrot you know this leadership approach does it start with the leaders it probably does but what I found interesting is how people then get to accept it as being, well, everyone's doing it, therefore it must be okay, but actually it's not. Yeah. Well, it's a bit, it's a bit like a lot of things that um, are okay, you know, from, for some time, and then they're not okay. And you have to look at the way that our society is evolving. Um, racism was endemic in our society in a very overt way when we were children and it's still endemic but it's now being exposed for example um sexism uh, all sorts of oppression of minorities and the deceit around that has been you know has been common throughout history and one of the things about mis-selling is and i was thinking as you were talking about how this how we can see parallels in our personal relationships which are sometimes based on deceit or in our political relationships, which are mostly based on deceit. I mean, there are very few people in political in political life, for example, who will answer a straight question with a straight answer, and yet we accept it. There are many, many people who are over-promised and under-delivered when it comes to dating. You know, even from uh, photoshopping your image, your face and your physique on a dating app, and the disappointment on the delivery and so on and so forth. So this whole thing about, you know, deceit and manipulation is right. It's not just about mis-selling. It's about, you know, part of the way that our communities work or don't work. Um, but what I found is that the solution to this is, is staring us straight in the face. It's part of what I believe is the ideal, and Aristotle talked about, the ideal human relationship is actually friendship. It's not the relationship between parents and children, although that can be friendship and it can be very strong. It's not the relationship between them uh, married or, um, you know, living together partners. It is about the choices we, we make about the people that we want to spend time with. And we want to spend time with people who are, you know, who are, who are good for us and we're good for them. It's a, it's a mutual thing. So I, I often talk about the importance of, of relationships based on mutual benefit. And the opposite to that is coercion and deception. And people also talk to me about the difference between values and rules. And the reason I'm raising this now is that if you have a predisposition to help others to be kind and generous and compassionate. You don't need rules to tell you how to do that. I mean, the Roman historian Tacitus said, the more laws, the more corrupt the state. For example, um, the French philosopher Albert Camus said, integrity has no need of rules. And yet, when you look at most of the workplaces that people have, and you look at the rules that are being issued at the moment to help to try to keep us safe during this pandemic and to keep businesses afloat. You can see how badly that complexity is working out. Um, and, uh, and I really do feel that we, we need to stop and, you know, really stop and think about understanding, if you like, the power of the way we relate to each other in a positive way in small groups and, and I, I guess what I've discovered through trial and error is that if you're going to make a difference to an individual and uh, a team and then a company, you have to start, you have to operate in the small. 
And what I mean by that is that my most important work has to begin with the most senior leaders in the team to get them to understand some of these truths about who we are as human beings and how we live and work together in groups of friends and family groups and tribes and look at the history of the way we've done that. So, for example, if you're working in an organisation with more than 150 people, that organisation in a way is too big because we can't really know more than 150 people. If you think about your true friends, there's probably no more than a handful. Your extended family is probably no more than about a dozen people. Um, and a dozen groups of a dozen people is the sort of average size of, of uh, community. So um, for most of our existence as a species on this planet, from what we can tell from the archeological and other historical records, the optimal maximum size of a human community, a tribe, is about 150 individuals, yeah. which is roughly 12 groups of 12, uh, 12 families of 12. Um, and it's been given a name. It's called the Dunbar number after Robin Dunbar, Oxford University, who's an anthropologist. And that's been true up until we started forming larger groups when we started moving into static farming as a species, which was sort of 15, 10, 15, maybe 20,000 years ago, uh, where we started to specialize. So instead of uh, doing things, doing everything, as hunter-gatherers, hunter-gathering tribes still do today, we started to specialize and that requires larger and larger groups. But we start then to lose connections and therefore trust with other people. So the problem we have is that uh, so-called economies of scale drive growth and size in enterprises, but it actually at the same time diminishes our capability to build strong relationships. So the solution that I've always worked on, on uh, I always work on now, is to work with leaders and their teams. So one leader, one team, no more than about a dozen people. And then if it's a senior team, then I each of those members of the team are leaders of their own team. So you can see how the, how the pyramid uh, goes. And it's only by doing that that you can actually get the sort of rapid change that, um, that I've seen with some of the organisations I've worked with, where, sorry, for example, we've seen employee engagement scores raised by 15 to 20% within six months, not because there's an imposition of a new productivity or performance management system is because I start to get people to focus on how they relate to each other at work as fellow human beings in small groups uh, and that applies now on zoom so people are spending time you know a lot of time virtually but they're still acting in smaller groups you can't get more than about a dozen people on the screen and still see people mm. I think what would be great is if we could sort of come into some of the principles that you describe in your book, Ethicability, which I, I've really enjoyed reading. And I think they're, you know, they're two things that would be great to, for you to expand on. One, one is the different types of, what do you call them, principles of ethics, you know, the ethic of care, the ethic of obedience. Uh, and so on and also the values that you have connected with them so I wonder if you could talk about you know what was the basis of you forming your theories of ethics yeah thank you I'm very happy to do that and first of all that they're, they're not my theories um, what I've tried to do over the years is to make understood or help people understood um, the three core strands of moral philosophy that people have been talking about for thousands of years but philosophers do suffer some you know a bit of uh, hubris and do like to use really really long words which I mean I struggle with some of the words they use sometimes and I have to look them up so there are three moral philosophers which um, three core philosophies which philosophers have called so deontology so that's, if you like, the ethic of obedience or what I now simply call rules. So doing the right thing is doing as you're told, which is the moral philosophy that dominates our conscious upbringing as infants. And in fact, Lawrence Kohlberg, a very important psychologist at Harvard back in the 80s, 
described what he called the um, theory of moral development. Uh, in effect, understanding the difference between right and wrong because your mum or dad tells you is the first stage. So the deontological or the ethic of obedience or what I now call the rules is the first strand of moral philosophy, um, but it's for moral infants. Uh, and yet, so what we have is we reflect on our previous discussion around businesses and even governments, basically our current system of moral philosophy and ethics in our society is driven primarily by moral infancy, the moral infancy of rules. No wonder you get people behaving in an infantile way because of it. Um, so that's the first one. The next one people call, philosophers are called consequentialism or utilitarianism. And uh, what that means is the greatest happiness for the greatest number which which sounds fine uh, but it's not a definition that is really relates to if you like the core religious traditions of moral philosophy which are all actually about uh, love and compassion so the sad reality is that the history of moral philosophy is written been written by men and men tend to have more of a rational calculus about what is good and if you're saying the greatest happiness for the greatest number, it sounds fine until you're a minority. And we're all part of a majority, but we're also part of minorities as well. Um, so what has been more helpful is to see the development of a more uh, feminist ethic of care, which I would actually call it's, it's about mother's love, for, without which we wouldn't survive. And that care and compassion, kindness and so on, is really what that philosophy is all about, in my view, um, which is why I refer to it in the book as the ethic of care. I now refer, reference it as people. So how, how do the decisions we make affect other people? And do we care about it? So that's number two. Number three, which is the most difficult one, because it requires quite a lot of thought and reflection. Moral philosophers are called virtue ethics, which is as the name suggests, based on a set of moral values, which is what a virtue is, things like courage, things like fairness, things like wisdom, and of course, love and compassion. And this approach, it does require thought. So I call it the ethic of reason in the book, but it's actually about values. And it's about the values we believe in. And values are, if you like, touchstones. They're their indicators they don't tell you what to do they suggest what you might do and what it feels like and it's more like jazz than a mozart symphony for example mozart symphony is all about rules whereas if you look at jazz and improvisation that's all about values and principles so those are the three core strands of moral philosophy which i try and explain in the book and that we have within the moral dna profile and what I do is I don't go into all of the rules we have because I don't have time. I, life, isn't, life is too short. What I do explore are 10 moral values, which I think are quite important, but there are probably others that other people value more. And for me, uh, the best moral decisions tend to be made when we think about the purpose of our lives and our work where we root that in how the question of how am I helping others we have enough rules to make us safe but there's basically two just two sets of rules that we need to be aware of one um, firstly respect other people's property and don't nick people's stuff so that's the norm and the taboo so there's two sides to these rules and the more important one is be kind to others and don't hurt them. So if you look, there are just two basic sets of rules. There are two coins, they have two sides. And it's interesting that if you look at Google, when it was first set up, it had the taboo of don't do evil. And Alphabet has now switched that to be good. Whether or not they're achieving it is a moot point. So those are two core rules. So it's about people and property. And property is important because without property, you know, stuff, it's very difficult to survive and thrive. 
but the purpose of property is to help people thrive and survive and that's why those two sets of rules are good and by the way mis-selling deception is a form of theft you know fraud is theft and so on um so i hope i hope that helps in terms of the three moral philosophers which in the book are the ethic of care the ethic of obedience the ethic of reason i now call them people rules and values yeah it's no i've i found it very interesting reading about it and also how the role that those ethics play as as you get older as well Mm. you talk about you know as as children you you know you you're given a set of rules i guess you know what to touch what not to touch how to act how not to act and so you've got but of course as you as you get older that ethic becomes perhaps less important as you become wiser you talk about wisdom uh, in in your values what was interesting actually is the ethic of care which is running fairly consistent i think uh, through different ages the ethic of reason of course becoming more important as one gets older um i i suppose the reason why it resonated was because i could identify you know with with that and no one's ever broken it down in that way for me i haven't read any books on philosophy but it kind of made a lot of sense yes it does feel and that's because it's not only rooted in philosophy but it's rooted in our insights you know since the 19th century into the human psyche so the fact that we are beginning to understand how our minds work and how our emotional states work um you know that's very very important and powerful what we're learning is that we have overestimated our uh, if you like our rational minds we think we're a quantum computer and actually we're nothing like it we're basically a an advanced chimp and most of our decisions and actions are grounded in very primitive primal survival instincts if you like and also the next layer up which are our emotions of uh, for example love on one hand and fear on on the other uh, and it's interesting if you look at the moral philosophy of the ethic of obedience or rules that's driven by fear the ethic of care and uh, our c- concern for other people is driven by love and compassion and the two are often in opposition and you know i think it'd be really interesting for people watching or listening to this podcast to think about their not only their workplace but our societies and ask themselves the question how much of if you like our ethics within either my business or my public sector organization or within government is driven by rules driving our fear psyche uh, and which are driven by kindness and compassion and if you like uh, our need for psychological safety and where that comes from and if you look at the whole thing about the nhs and key workers at the beginning of the pandemic the people who stood out as icons of that we were all aspiring to were not uh, you know were healthcare workers who were saving people's lives at risk to their own uh pe- you know tesco delivery drivers and the neighbors coming around and dropping off food and stuff for people who were shielding those are the people that we valued most in those situations and yet i'm not sure whether people really understood uh, and asked the question why aren't we keeping that why aren't we recognizing that when we're really up against it it's not about how much we have it's about who we love and trust and care for and and the reciprocity on that so so i think that's that has informed a lot of my work and i've got such an acute detector antenna for bullying bosses in the workplace and the systems they construct and i also feel compassion towards them because a lot of these people are actually deeply insecure i mean why would you do horrible things to people in order to become you know your standard of living doesn't increase very much from earning a million to 2 million bucks a year why why do you inflict such suffering just to get such a marginal increase 
in your personal wealth. And it's got nothing to do with the money. It's to do with the fact that a lot of greedy senior executives suffer from status anxiety and it's not the money. I keep telling remuneration committees, you're not understanding the issue here. The psychological bargain that you're getting into is not the money, it's the status that this gives. And it's driving really, really bad behaviours. Narcissistic, Machiavellian and psychopathic behaviours, what psychologists call the dark triad traits. Hmm. Very, uh, it's very, very interesting. I think for me, what's interesting is a comment you made earlier about the fact you don't, I think you used the phrase, if you people act with integrity, you don't need too many rules. Was that a Camus quote? Yes, yes. It's, but it's, it's been something that we've had for a long time in our yeah. collective psyche. But yes, please go on with yeah. the question. Yeah, so so the, the idea is that if the right values are in place, you don't need rules. And, and, and it becomes a predictor of how people are going to act or react in a given situation if you know that the values are grounded you know, mm -hmm. in, in, in the right place. And it's very interesting in your book, you also make reference to the decision a mother has to make uh, with two children in the tsunami and you know which one do you let go and which one do you save and this resonated for me because I was caught in the tsunami uh, with my family on the east coast of Sri Lanka wow. and uh, we had the, the scenario of the wave coming in me with one of my daughters my wife underneath the roof of a restaurant which caved in when the wave came in and you know we're up a tree and you make a decision. Do you stay in the tree with your daughter or do you dive into the wave to see if you can save your wife who, who you think has been distressed? And so you don't have time to think things through. You just do it because you do whatever you think is right. Mm. And I know from a, I was doing my PhD at the time. Um, and I know that the amount of reflection that took on and how one acted or reacted came at a very good point as I was looking at some of the research findings about how customers want to be sold to. It was so interesting and, it, uh, and one of the images of that rather horrific episode that stuck with me was on the morning after the tsunami hit. By the way, all, all my family were thankfully saved and they'd all managed to get themselves out of trouble. Um, but there were these helicopters landing on the hill. There was no other means of getting to a hospital. And there were, I think, about six or 700 people needing to be taken to safety. So who goes first? You know, who goes first in the helicopter? And uh, there was this one particular family who weren't caught up in the wave at all that came. And they came with suitcases, two parents and children, and they felt they earned the right to get onto the helicopter first. And there were people there who had uh, lost a lot. I mean, I had my clothes ripped off me, so I just was wearing a sarong <laughs> at the time. And, uh, but I by no means was the worst affected. Anyway, the crowd then decided that this family shouldn't get on the helicopter. And in any case, you can't get on with all those suitcases because it would weigh the helicopter down and stop people getting out. Anyway, so what they did was that they they took all the clothes that were in their suitcases and they wore them. So they decided that they would wear five pairs of trousers and six shirts. And it was just unbelievable. You know, and you think, where did that come from? But it actually, you know, making instant decisions and linking it back to sales performance in my case was, was quite interesting. If you can get the values right, you will be in a much better position to predict how a salesperson is going to act, you know, with customers. And so that's why that then was a transformative moment, yeah. I think, when we started to look at, well, what are the values that customers look for in salespeople? Mm. And the link to predictable, sustainable performance then was made. And that's uh, the rest is history. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, firstly, I didn't know that about your family and your story. And, you know, thankfully, you've all survived. And I imagine all of you have learned from that experience. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, in the six months after, all we did was reflect and talk about it. And, of, and of course, it makes the family that much stronger. 
you know, through that process, that sort of cathartic process of talking about it. So, yeah, I mean, we've all kind of dealt with it in slightly different ways. Um, But thankfully, it had a very positive outcome. Yeah. And I I think what, what that does to me, so one of the things we haven't touched on, if we've got time, is the fact that, so you look at the character of the people on that hill, the character of the people you know, carrying suitcases, then putting all their clothes on instead of sharing their clothes out with the people who had no clothes like you. Um, And one of the things I've reflected on, and I've been raising this quite a lot with the organisations I'm supporting right now, is when you're hiring someone or when you're promoting someone, what are you doing about thinking about their moral character? And the reality is most people hiring or promoting people do not look and examine people's moral character and it's not not a question of choosing saints or sinners it's about understanding how people behave under pressure which is the story you are telling and you only really know someone's character when you see them under pressure when they have to make judgments about personal loss or collective gain and that's that for me it's it's a massive missing element in the way that for example that senior executives are appointed it's it's just continues to dumbfound me that nominations committees on boards do not look objectively at the character of the people that they hire or if they do they are positively hiring narcissists machiavellians and psychopaths And there's a lot of research around the fact that the percentage of people hired in senior roles who fall into those psychological categories is significantly higher than the average in the population. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, I'd love you to share your thoughts on linking the uh, sort of an ethics-led approach and financial performance and success of a company because I think people perhaps are under the misconception that in order to run a successful company you've got to run it with those characters that you've just mentioned in mind you've got to be narcissist you've got to be Machiavellian Mm -hmm. but I know you've done quite a lot of studies. The research shows very clearly that in the current system the best performing companies over time have uh, discernible ethical values and purpose but they are a very small minority and they're not of interest to speculators um high turnover you know high frequency hedge fund traders not interested in organizations that are stable and steady and create something meaningful over time so so we've got a problem in in the way that the market works and the market describes value in many ways, the system helps leaders, as we were saying earlier, in terms of the way that the percentage of people with psychological personality dysfunction are promoted in the system, uh, because the system itself is, has a level of moral corruption, which means that if you're going to survive in the system, you have to play the game. So in the current system, ethics is neutral. It's a choice. You can make money being ethical. You can make being money easier being unethical as long as you find a way to escape the consequences. So it's not a clear-cut case, and it's a choice. It's like most things in life. You can choose to live your life as a selfish, hurtful, spiteful individual and accumulate the trappings of success that our society ascribes to that doesn't necessarily make you a happier person or you can choose to be someone who's caring who puts their lives and interest about above those of others for example a nurse in a uh, you know a covid intensive care ward not get paid very much and risk your life every hour of every day and so what I'm trying to say is it's a matter of choice so I can't say if you're ethical you're profitable or if you're ethical you're unprofitable in a way, it's neutral. It's a, it's, a, it's a moral decision that you, the leader or the worker, has to take. Yes, it does. Yeah. It's certainly not true that to be ethical means you won't never make any money, because that's clearly not true. 
But it's also true that if you're unethical, you'll never make money. Of course you can make money because as long as you can get away with it. So the most successful, um, you know, if you want to make a lot of money very quickly, learn out how to become a cyber criminal and steal money from people's digital accounts. But don't get caught. As long as you don't get caught, you're very, very, very successful. But when you get caught, you're not. Yeah. You made some sort of fairly controversial statement the other day on a workshop that we attended, which is your opinions about sales commission. Hmm. Can I ask you a sort of direct, is it possible, do you think, to have a commission orientated sales system, which is ethical? Well, basically, I see sales commissions as a form of bribery, which are there to be a poor substitute for people who have high levels of motivation because what they believe in doing is for the greater good. So this is very grounded in the research around human motivation. Human beings are not primarily motivated by personal financial reward. It's absolutely not true. The greatest motivators we have are uh, in number three, number two, I can't remember quite the order. I know what number one is, purpose and potential. So to know that the work I'm doing has real meaning and value to my community is number three or number two. The other one is potential. I'm learning how to do that purposeful work better every day. The number one motivator for success is in this study was play. I'm actually having fun. I'm being creative. I can see the funny side in what we're doing, spread joy, if you like, around the community. Our customers love what we do, all of that. So the research is overwhelming. Google found, for example, when they looked at their most successful teams, psychological safety was the principal driver of their most successful teams. So in other words, and you can't have psychological safety and be scared of either a sales target or be motivated by a sales commission. So I'm not saying it's ethical or unethical. It just doesn't. It's not the best way to motivate homo sapiens. Mm. So, so why do it? I mean, it, it has it invariably leads to people selling. If you're on a sales commission, then that's about you. It's not about your client or your customer. It's about you. You should be focused on what is it I can do that's best for my client or customer. And if what, what I'm doing is to say to them, actually, our good or our product or our service is not right for you, you should say it and not be punished for it. So I'm very clear about sales commissions. And it's for me, it's no, you know, no accident that sales commissions have pretty much been abolished in retail banking. Yeah, that's a, a pretty big move in the world of sales because there are very few sales organisations who don't use commission as a form of behavioural, you might call it manipulation. It is. Yeah. It is. So, all, so overall, ignore my opinion, but what I'm saying is based on very clear psychological research. So if you don't like what I'm saying, if your audience doesn't like what I'm saying, go to the research and look it up for yourself, because that's what I've done. Mm. And then say to yourself, okay, so we've got a sales commission uh, system, which seems to create the results we're looking for, but with some byproducts, which aren't very savory. Why have we got such high turnover of customers, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then look at the research around what truly motivates people in the workplace. Mm. The reason it's not changing is because you've got sales managers and sales directors who turn around and say, well, don't, don't, you know, I've had a sales commission scheme all of my career work for me. So it's going to work for everybody else. Well, of course it is. Of course, that's how you're going to feel because you've built 30, 20, 30, 40 years on something that worked for you. It doesn't mean they say it's going to work for everybody else. It's a bit, a bit like saying I've been smoking for 50 years. I haven't died of lung cancer. Hmm. Very good. Roger, I know that we're running over our time slightly, and I know that we could probably spend another two or three hours talking about this, but I think we probably have to draw it to a close. At this point, I just want to thank you hugely for your um, participation, and it will be very interesting to see how people react when they listen to this podcast. <laughs> I, I'm very conscious. I don't want to 
the last thing I say, talk about smoking for 50 years and I haven't died of lung cancer yet. I don't like that to be my last word. What I would say to people is, look, unless you are a clinical psychopath, uh, we are all, unless you're in that 1% of 1%, we are good people trying to do the right thing in a challenging world. The solution that I've, you know, the, if you like, the formula that I've discovered, both through research and through practice, professional practice and personal practice, is that life is better when we truly have, you know, first, you know, front in our mind, when we really care about others. If you're in the sales profession, if you truly care about the best interests of your clients and your customers, you will be very successful over the long term and be happy doing your job and will be fairly rewarded. Can I just ask you one final question? It's about the moral DNA questionnaire. You know, how would people get access to your questionnaire? Well, very simply, you can Google moral DNA. The URL is moraldna.org. There's a free version for the benefit of humanity, uh, which only takes three or four minutes to complete. And then if employers want to use it uh, with their employees, we obviously have a paid version as well. But you can sample it and try it on moraldna.org. It's designed to be used on smartphones, tablets and laptops. Well, that's super. Well, thank you, Roger. Thank you, day, Phil. I hope, uh, well, I hope you enjoyed it as well. I did. Well, it's great to have Roger on the podcast series. So thank you so much again. He's an incredibly busy man. We know he's very busy with the master's modules that we're currently delivering on ethics in particular, and the same with our undergraduate program as well. We're going to be including links to his profile and the moral DNA survey in the show notes below. So to be sure to take a look at that. Again, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please spread the word and share it with at least one other salesperson Now, we've got an upcoming trilogy you might be interested to listen to as well, this time on resilience, which I think we'll all agree is absolutely relevant for the time in which we're now living. We have some amazing special guests, as you would expect, from the Consalia Sales Transformation podcast, such as Sir Graham Lamb, ex-three-star general of the British Army and director of the SAS. He'll be talking about organizational resilience. We have Baz Gray, who is ex-Royal Marine, and he will be talking about how to build personal resilience. And we have Carol Pemberton, whose doctorate was on coaching for resilience. And of course, she'll be talking about what sales leaders can do to coach others around them on that particular topic. Anyway, be sure that you don't miss out on the next few episodes. If you want to keep abreast with what's coming up, please subscribe to our newsletter. The link will be in the show notes below. Once again, a big thank you.